Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. On today's show, all technologies, whether they're manifested in physical form or in digital form, they're all interconnected. They're all systems. And so, again, going back to this holistic approach, when you look at that and you look at what success means and you work backwards from from definition of success of the users, it's really amazing. A very special episode on cities and technology timed with New York City's Election Day and featuring special guest Art Chang who is a mayoral candidate for the city of New York. He's the son of Korean immigrants and father of two boys, and he spent the last 35 years working as a professional problem solver in New York City. He's built a dozen startups in the city, all focused on using technology as a force for good. He built Casebook, the first web-based software platform for child welfare, which is now the system of record in the state of Indiana. He put Queens West, the Long Island City waterfront, in the ground with climate change in mind, making it one of only two developments in the city to not lose power during Hurricane Sandy. He also co-created NYC Votes with the Campaign Finance Board to improve participation in our local democracy. And with that, please help me welcome Art Chang. Art, you are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so delighted to see you. It's wonderful to make that transition from clubhouse to video. You got it, exactly. That's an important point that we need to clarify for our, our watchers and listeners right now is that uh, we met on Clubhouse, the audio, the social audio platform. That was great. It was one of the best uses of the platform that I feel like I've had. Uh, are you still using it? Actually, no. I feel like it's jumped the shark. I feel like I met you. Then who else did I need to meet? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> totally untrue. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, no. I feel like there was a moment because we were in that sort of just before the vaccines set us free out into the world again, when social audio had a really big inflection point. And then now I feel like people are kind of like trying to figure out what it'll be in this sort of post-vaccine reality. Have you got any ideas about that? I don't. I don't. I mean, there's this one wonderful New Yorker, you know, cartoon, which is, you know, of these two people hugging. Yeah. And someone is going, well, like, how long can you hug? <laughs> I think I've been putting that to the test lately. <laughs> I feel like I've been grabbing my friends and just clenching them, holding them tight. I'm so glad to be Absolutely. out in, in the real world again. Hey, you know, thinking about your your campaign for mayor of New York City, uh, you seem like a very different kind of mayor background wise and experience wise from a lot of the other, uh, at least the main contenders and, and certainly, you know, that tech and entrepreneurship and working around communities and, and uh, institutions that feels like it's a really relevant kind of set of skills, just very different. So what made you decide to take those skills and put them to use running for mayor and potentially being the mayor of New York City? Well, you know, every, every crisis is a huge opportunity. And when COVID hit and the Black Lives Matter protests happened, you know, I just looked at this and said, man, there is so much in the city that deserves a real transformation. And I could see the things that needed to be transformed, like namely everything. And you could see also like how you could do that. And I thought, well, this is a transformational moment for New York, in New York City's history. But what it's going to need is a mayor who has a really kind of supreme set of, of experiences, you know, city government, state government, um, the key nonprofits, 
um, the kind of the mind of the, the rational mind from business and finance and technology, but also the creativity and the heart of somebody from the arts. And I looked for a candidate to support and I couldn't find someone who fit that description. And then I looked in the mirror and I said, well, <laughs> I, I have that. And maybe there's somebody in the city who's better than I, but, you know, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. So in November, I filed and in December, I announced. And what's that process been like? Just total chaos or what? <laughs> no, it's been almost the opposite. It's been, um, you know, I spent nine years on the campaign finance board, so I know the process, you know, pre- pretty well. But... You know, I think the the first thing was that saying, like, when the tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? <laughs> and I felt like I filed to run, and there was absolutely zero reaction. <laughs> <laughs> and people said, you know, God, you have no chance. You're not a household name. You've never run for office before. And I'm like, well, I might look like an outsider, but I think of myself as very much of a policy insider. Right. Right. Because I've done so much. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, in 2018, I helped form the strategy that helped be part of developing the strategy that led to the throwing out the IDC and getting a truly progressive state legislature for the first time in 25 years. So I've been in the in the trenches. I've just been behind the scenes. Yeah. And I've chosen to kind of make things happen instead of, you know, be part of the chattering class, I would guess. <laughs> chattering I would say. class. That's such a great expression. What about those, uh, the dozen sort of tech for good startups that you'd mentioned in your bio? What were some of those? I know we, we talked a little bit in the intro about Casebook and the child welfare system, which I'd love to hear more about. But so some of the other uh, sort of unnamed dozen, what, what's been the sort of tenor or thrust of, of many of them? Well, almost all of them are formed around a problem and solving a problem and finding the right instantiation of something to address that issue. And then having a very clear idea of what success means mm-hmm. and who the stakeholders are and that who would benefit from it and then working backwards from it. And so like for me, I've always done that without actually thinking about up, up front, what is the profit motive for it? I'm thinking of, well, what's the solution for it? And then what's the highest and best match for the structure of the entity, for the type of organization it is, whether it's nonprofit, for-profit, or something else, and then how we measure success and orient toward that success. And, you know, what's different about the way that I think is that, you know, I've never really been motivated by money. I've never been motivated by sort of the rewards that venture capital typically looks toward. I've been much more motivated by what the benefit end users get. And sometimes in some of the things that I've worked on, they run its course and then the benefit is over and that's actually okay as well. That makes sense. And, and I like the, I like that framing of, you know, knowing exactly what the problem is and how, like how you're going to measure it. So knowing what success looks like, that feels like, I mean, that's a very relevant framework for city government in general or, or you know, any kind of policy approach. And I don't, I don't feel like that is necessarily what the impression that I get anyway of how uh, policymaking or governance is often approached. <laughs> so. Yes. And I, and I would say like the, the current mayor is a great example of what happens when you put someone who's been a career politician into an executive role. And I think part of the disconnect in this race is that you know, all the tools that the press have and and that we're taught um, are really focused on legislative races. And the mayor for a city the size of New York and for smaller cities is actually a very different role. Mm. It's a chief executive role, right? I mean, the city, you know, the city is actually, if it were a country, it would be in the top 20 in the world in terms of GDP. 
and its budget is larger than all but four states. If we were a private corporation, we'd be in the top 30 of all U.S. corporations by the size of our employee base and our budget. So this is a, a role that is really managerial, it's problem solving. The design of the city government is super important. And being able to match the kind of the, 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 the capabilities of the government with the needs of the people of New York is a very different problem than figuring out, well, what law am I going to pass? Mm -hmm. And then how do I generate my reward from that? You know, one of the other things that, that strikes me about what you're just saying there is the recognition that cities are kind of different animals from other levels of, in a sense, of government, other ways of, of thinking about a populace. And, and so cities, I think, are very special. And there is this way in which data and tech has kind of come around cities in the last, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, like we've, we've thought about how we're going to use data and tech to create better cities, how we're going to make smarter cities. And that whole smart city movement feels like it's been through a lot of generations in the time that, uh, in that time span, for example. But there is a, a sense that, so one thing is that smart city discussion has evolved a lot, right? We know that people are talking a lot more about uh, personal privacy than we were talking about in the early part of that smart city discussion. But it feels like there's still a lot of opportunity to have a very um, integrated use of data and technology in providing for the citizens of, uh, you know, the residents and the visitors and, and all of the other uh, stakeholders in a city. So what are some of your thoughts about that? What are the missed opportunities? What aren't, what aren't we talking about when it comes to that? Well, let's, let's start with universal broadband. You know, in um, 1994, you know, you mentioned Queens West and my, my experience there. In 1994, we actually envisioned it as a digital live-work community. It was the first planned community with universal broadband in the country. We had, we had T1s going to every one of the apartments in the first two buildings, and we built the infrastructure to allow people to work from home remotely. And we even had this crazy idea that maybe one day students would be connected to their university so they could learn from home. And that was 1994. And you look at where we are today. And the, the interesting thing to me, and the tragic thing is that all the other candidates are, are still have a mindset that is locked in 1998 technology, which is, you know, point to point, fixed line networks, they're not thinking about mesh networks. They don't have the language for three-dimensional networks. Trying to figure out, you know, more creatively how we sort of take the fixed line infrastructure that we have and build upon it is something that 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 nobody is really talking about. So when people say, well, we have to have universal broadband, well, how are they going to do it if they don't understand what it actually means and what the opportunities are and how we leverage all the different players, right, in that whole, you know, business process to make that happen? Yeah, you know, it, it seems like there's been some conversation about that relative to this mayoral race and some of the other candidates and their exposure to that discussion. But I think what's also interesting is to compare with other cities, like the Sidewalk Labs project in Toronto that got a lot met with a lot of, of resistance from uh, residents and had to be sort of reframed and reapproached. What do you think is going to be the the way that we can really tackle? Not just broadband, but I mean, some of these things like the the uh, Link NYC kiosk, uh, kiosks, for example, they seem right. like they are a kind of a great example of a bad example. <laughs> like, yes, right. They're, they're 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 a great example of something that 
was like a really great PowerPoint. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, like someone said, oh, look, here's this really cool thing. We provide these things. There's no seating anywhere near them. Mm-hmm. You have to go and stand. There's only well, there are only two USB ports, I think, in some of them. Like it's like the the use is so limited. And then what is what are they supposed to connect to? Right? There's no kind of repeater system for them to get more range. So the whole idea was kind of you know it's a nice thing to experiment with. We can probably learn a lot from it, but it wasn't thought about holistically, which right. you have to really do. <laughs> Going back to Sidewalk Labs and. You know, what Google has been trying to do, I'm a huge fan of their willingness to experiment, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the Toronto thing, just from an outsider's view, was really trying to bite off too much at once and really trying to take things a little bit too far for, for people's comfort. It would have been better to take a more iterative approach. But in contrast, look at what Chattanooga has done, mm-hmm. right? Chattanooga ha- now has the highest broadband in the country. And that's really fostered, been a huge economic engine for that for that small city. you know. And, and you look at what the return has been for them, and we have to do the same thing here because you know, we already are in a place where we don't have sufficient broadband, even for the tech startups in our city. And so unless we do this, we're really going to hold back economic development for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Chattanooga because at the time that Chattanooga got started um, in its partnership with Google, I was living in Nashville, and mm. so it's you know closer proximity than here, and uh, it was it was definitely the sense that the acceleration sort of started from that point, and there was there was already this kind of entrepreneurial community in Chattanooga, just as there was a kind of beginning to flourish entrepreneurial entrepreneurial community in Nashville. But with that, uh, with that broadband and with the partnership with Google into the entrepreneurial community, it feels like that really helped it take off. Uh, and, and it helped a lot of the neighboring cities get their bearings relative to what, was, what the priorities were there, too. I'm bullish on that, that kind of experimentation. Now, you used two words in your comments so far that are favorites of mine. One was holistic, taking a more holistic approach to how those things are going to be thought out and also iterative. <laughs> so yes. that holistic iterative approach feels like it could go a long way for this city. So I'm glad you're out there championing that. I wanted to pivot a little bit and just get into a little bit of fun area here, which is about just technology in this kind of general sense of how it affects our lives. There's this Everybody knows, I think, the, the Arthur C. Clarke quote about any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Such a great observation is third law. But I always tell this story about, you know, there, there being two times in my life when I had that experience of encountering technology and getting the, like, the little tingles on the back of my neck and, you know, that excited feeling. And one was when I saw the graphical web for the first time, you know, and, and not just, you know, the sort of text-based links browser but seeing mosaic and seeing the embedded graphics and uh, you know formatted fonts and things like that, and my mind just went like this is going to change everything, and of course it did. And then the second time was when I saw augmented reality for the first time, and I got that same tingles, whatever, like hmm. this is going to change everything, and of course it really hasn't yet. <laughs> But I think that, first of all, I think that it really, really could. But I just want to ask you, you know, just for the sake of, of having that connection with, like, what technology has meant to you, is there a moment or have there been multiple moments in your life when you also have just kind of 
realized all at once the power and potential of a particular kind of technology and how it could change the world? Oh, um, well, many, there have had many, many moments. Because um, I'm old enough to have lived through several generations of technology development. Yeah. So, you know, just to place myself in, a, in an era, I mean, I graduated from college in 1985 without having had a computer. I, I actually typed my senior thesis <laughs> on a typewriter. And, I, you know, I went to work in a startup that used, I was forced to use uh, DBase as a database. And so I was fascinated by that. And then we started to experiment with relational databases. And that was like at the very advent of that time. Mm -hmm. So that was like 1987, 88. And then in 1990, when I went to work at the city's law department, they were, they were on an AS300 system, right, which was a terminal mainframe system. And I was like, it just, my mind just went <laughs> <laughs> and so I convinced my boss to buy a PC, a number of PCs, and I actually, with my own hands, I put together a mini LAN with the first relational database at the city in the city's law department in 1990, and that was phenomenal because the transformation that we had in terms of, of responsiveness and ease of use and being able to address the user needs um, in these data queries was absolutely tremendous. And then fast forward. You know, I mean, oh my God, HyperCard. Yeah. I saw HyperCard and I thought about, oh my God, visual databases. I'm like, wow, this is insane. And then the iPod, oh, yeah. the first iPod, I went, oh my God, Steve Jobs is going to make a phone. <laughs> oh, you saw that connection right away from, I just saw from the right iPod away. to the like, iPhone? Because you saw what he did. He, he, he created iTunes first to, to see if people would actually... You know, you know, ripped their CDs, and they did, and then they they self-organized them, and they had all all this way of doing this, and then you had the iPod, and it just exploded, and I went, oh my God, they're going to put a screen on this, and then it's going to become a mini computer, and then it's going to become a phone, <laughs> and I just went, oh, I just went, oh my God, this is going to change everything yeah. that we know. And then in 2000, then just kind of backtrack a little bit, in 2003, I had my first interaction with open source software. And I, there was a project that I wanted to build. I was, I, had, I was running a beta, and, you know, I had $50,000 in budget. And I said, like, what can I start for 50000 bucks? Nothing. And then, <laughs> you know, I was introduced to a developer who was working with very, very early uh, MySQL, a beta version of MySQL, and a beta version of PHP. And we built a website for $20,000 with a database and a whole back end with a visual front end. And I just went, oh, my God, this is because you could see the just acceleration that, yeah. that, would, that, would, that, would, that that would create. And then after that, I just went fully in open source. And then in, oh, my God, like the next one <laughs> You've was. You've got a great list. This is fantastic. Um, Keep oh, going. Like, like, There's so many things. I mean. <laughs> Uh, oh my God! And then, then when Agile came out, I, you know, I saw Agile and yeah. around the same time, and, but then I saw Agile being like all over the place. There's no discipline to it. And then I met Rob Me and Pivotal Labs in 2007, and they introduced me to XP. I was like, Oh my God! And so I became an XP adherent. I'm like, This changes everything. I went between open source, the cheapness of open source. And the reliability and the error reduction of XP, we can build enterprise-scale things on a relative dime. And come back and to iterative was, and holistic there exactly, at that point. Yeah. And exactly. And then, you know, between the user-centered design, product-centered design, you know, and looking at how we take that whole mindset 
and apply that to even legacy technologies was 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 astonishing. And then finally, you know, I had the privilege of with Pivotal, you know, help Pivotal grow. I incubated them here in New York. I I, I persuaded a Silicon Valley company to move to New York <laughs> and became the engine of their growth. But then I went to work for them and they had just taken Cloud Foundry and now had this very thin layer, right? This very thin horizontal layer that was able to self-heal, that was able to, you know, connect microservices at the front end and the back end, right, in a very seamless way. It was truly like like a kind of again a revolutionary development in the way that we think about our systems. So it's that kind of system thinking that I think like we can take that, we can abstract that away from technology yes. and look at how we can apply systems thinking to the rest of what we do and then use and technology to enhance and make other things more efficient and effective and scalable and reliable and more user-centered and friendly. Like that to me is like the like the holy grail of all this of all the generations of technology that I've had the you know the privilege of being on the front row seat of. Well, that's fantastic. First of all, what a great like historical tour of the last few decades of uh, amazing tech innovations. And and then for you to put it in context like that, I think is is 100% right. That reminds me of the thing that's been kind of at the, the front of my mind throughout this pandemic has been this realization, you know, I've spent I've spent decades talking about the idea that analytics are people, data is people. And then it, it kind of occurred to me lately in, in about the last year and a half that the economy is people too. That when we talk about things like how we're going to reopen businesses and and how we're going to take different kinds of chances with public health because of the economy, I'm like, but the economy is people. (laughs) So we have to think in that very holistic way there too. And that, as you say, the very systems thinking kind of way about, you know, it's got to be about people and their ability to uh, contribute and you know be a functioning part of this of the economy in a, in a maker and value contributive sense but also in a healthy sense also in a protected sense and that that part seems super super important so I think that only comes from that systems perspective and you can I think abstract that out to so many other other layers and you know, and you raise such a cr- one critical point which I think is so important is that one of the things that I think the growth of conservative thinking has has really done over the past 60 years is that it has convinced us that everything is based upon dollars and cents and it's actually based on people and our human interactions and the dollar and cents are just a way one of the different way aspects in which that makes sense mm-hmm. and so people often like we're talking about the arts in the first place even i do this like we talk about how important the arts are to the u to the u.s city economy 100 billion dollars of, of value add but actually that all starts with artists Mm-hmm. Right. And the arts workers and this sort of human desire to create things, you know, and invent things and express oneself that then is that's really where the value is. And the fact that it's related to dollars and cents is a secondary benefit from that. Yeah, 100 percent. Totally agree. So that actually feels like it, it's an interesting segue into thinking about like the NYC votes work that you did and, and thinking about how to provide structural infrastructural kinds of resources that have to do with voting and citizenship that are data based and tech led. You know, talk us through a little bit about you know how that came to be and what that initiative really was and what, what that has taught you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. 
So I think it's, it gives us an opportunity to talk about two intersectional things. Uh, one is that the, the Campaign Finance Board was created to try to minimize the power of big money and dark money in New York City politics. And it is part and it's actually it's created um, in the city charter, which is the city's constitution. And the city charter is an important piece. And what you see is, is in, my, in my plans, it actually kind of weaves its way through because it's, it really is a living document that is so important. <clears throat> but the effort was really saying, well, if we provide matching funds for candidates, that they'll be able to run with less money, less focusing on raising money and more focus on the constituents. And so there were a couple other pieces. I mean, there are so two, two other important mandates. One mandate was, you know, how do we actually create sort of growing voter engagement? Because there's been alarm that over the decades, voter participation has declined, right? So it's yeah. like 12%, 13% in the last mayoral election, or I think 8% maybe in the last one. But It's only Blasio. been 1% so far in this early election season. Yes, one I read. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The other thing was that the candidates for office – are supposed to, it's supposed to be easier for candidates to run, but you know it's government, and where government is giving people the vote, the you know the voters' money or our taxpayers' money, and so there's this higher level of scrutiny, and so the regulatory burden is very heavy, and it was getting increasingly heavy. So when I joined the campaign finance board in 2009, and I was the first and only Asian appointed to the board, you know we didn't have an online voter guide, right? So you want to talk about increasing voter engagement? Well you know, 2009 and no online voter guide, that's ridiculous. The second thing was that the bureaucracy was so cumbersome that it was actually creating a bad name for campaign finance, that campaign finance was being equated with the city's campaign finance system, its overbearing regulations, and it was really causing damage to the entire reputation of the idea itself. So, I, you know, I said, we, we can't allow this to happen. And, you know, we have a fantastic team at the campaign finance board and, you know, Amy Lopress, of course we can't have this happen, but we don't have the know-how and we don't have the resources to do this. So I said, well, you know what, if you're willing to go down the journey with me, we're going to solve these problems. And so I pulled together a private, a private sector group um, who was willing to contribute our, our work for free. My firm, which is then Tipping Point Partners, um, an interaction design firm called Method and Pivotal, uh, Pivotal Labs. And we said, we're going to solve this problem, starting with the users. And so over about a year, we worked very closely with the campaign finance board's team and with the end goal of being able to provide a seamless engagement for voters for, for voter information, but also provide a seamless compliance and violation-free process for credit card contributions for candidates. And that was the end goal. Like, no violations, no audit. Just mm -hmm. take that friction away. And we did that. And we created this. We created this. We gifted it to the city. And we did it in a way where the city could ru keep running forward with it, that they had the ability, they had the knowledge, the training, and then the hooks to be able to bring in outside vendors to further the, the, the development of it. You said sort of a key phrase there that I thought was really important was uh, with the users, you know, starting with the users in mind. And, and that that feels like, again, that you can abstract that to a lot of other topics that are relevant to governing a, at a city level, that thinking about how you're going to involve communities and make sure that the people who are going to be most affected are part of the design process and part of thinking about the solution. I mean, that seems like it's a, a really important takeaway from this. 
Well, it's how we're going to be able to address every community, right? Because we think, you know, there are language communities, disability communities um, who can't really interact with the city government online and or even in person. And so we can actually help address a lot of those things by working backwards from the people and, and the needs to, you know, as a technology system that has all that information and has some of the beginning translation functions. That's very cool. I, I love that kind of that kind of project, that sort of solution that that's looking at, uh, like you said, holistic, right? You're looking at all these different kind of parts and pieces that can be connected and can be bettered by by that kind of integrative approach. Uh, that's fantastic. Speaking of that, though, it, it feels like kind of a little bit of it again and, and talking about another integrative approach in your background, right in your bio, it talks about this Queens West development and how, you know, having been built with climate change in mind, it was able to uh, keep power one of only two buildings, you said, in the city uh, during Hurricane Sandy. Talk us through a little bit about the history of, like, how did you get involved in, in that process and that development? And uh, what was, why was that a priority for you? And, and what do you think, what, do you, what have you learned from it? Well, I'm a kid who grew up in the Arab oil embargo, right? And when you, for those people who, are, who, who may not know the history, you know, the Arabs at that time controlled the world's greatest supply of oil, decided to raise the prices. And they, as a result, you know, embargoed um, oil deliveries to the U.S., which caused great shortages as a way to punish the U.S. And so there were huge, huge lines um, at gas pumps. People were running out of gasoline. It was a national crisis. Um, it actually resulted and, and there were a number of good things that came out of it. People started questioning whether we needed gas guzzling cars. Um, whether we need to think about fuel efficiency, whether we need to reduce the size of our cars. We started thinking about recycling and even composting. And this is back in the late 70s. And I can never, I can, I'll never forget actually doing competitions in my school to see who could bring in the most, you know, packages of tied up newspapers to the school, you know, <laughs> recycling collection. I was just looking for this. I just got this book, Panic at the Pump. The Energy Crisis and the Transformation of American Politics in the 1970s by Meg Jacobs. So have just been actually reading about this very topic. So uh, thank you for that real lived experience <laughs> that could contextualize it. You know, I was, and when I was working for the city in the law department, there was a lawsuit against this, against all the all the asbestos manufacturers for the costs of removing and replacing that asbestos. So I got very familiar with all the different players around the city and who controlled the building infrastructure for the city. And I always wanted to work on a big development. And there were rumors that the Queens West was was going to was going to come up, and so I started pinging the various people who I had known, like saying, "Do you know anything about this?" And there was finally, you know, an executive appointed, uh, Rosina Abramson. And this was really the truly probably the greatest breakthrough in my entire career hmm. was having her hire me as the first director of project management for this project because she was visionary. I mean, she adopted this idea that we were going to have a universal broadband, that there was a future, a digital future for, for, for New York, but also being open to this idea that, that seas were rising, that global temperatures were probably going up, that we were going to have more violent storms, that things like the 100-year flood line might not be drawn to anticipate future the future of these rising seas and right. storms. 
And and this is also done in, in the context of other forward-thinking people throughout the state government and city government. And so we planned for a 150-year storm and deliberately and consciously. And we made did a number of things that really allowed the, the project not to be overrun by the rising waters. Um, so it was really, you know, Battery Park City and Queens West, which did that. We softened the edge of the water, uh, which so I, like when you look at the whole waterfront resiliency plan for New York City, that we have to soften the edges because it creates such an absorptive buffer to rising seas and storms. We created trenches that are mostly hidden so that overflow water had a place to go. We surrounded the the, the foundations of the buildings with what we call bathtubs, which are concrete enclosures that would, again, prevent water from going into these, these places where so much of the infrastructure of these buildings were. And then we located as much of the, of the mechanicals on top of the buildings so that they would be protected from any, any water. And so there was like a number of other things that we did, but those are some of the most major things. And like all technologies, whether they're manifested in physical form or in digital form, they're all interconnected. They're all systems. And so, again, going back to this holistic approach, when you look at that and you look at what success means and you work backwards from, from definition of success of the users, it's really amazing. And I'll just end with one amazing story is that a couple of years ago, I was having dinner with uh, with another couple, my wife and I, and I asked him where he lived. And he said, well, you know, live in the uh, long, he explained where he lived. And it turns out he lived in the first building we built. And oh, wow. I said, you know, I was, I was the first project manager on that project. He, he said, no way. He stood up and he gave me a hug. He said, <laughs> oh, <wow>. thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And you want to talk about user satisfaction. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was extraordinary. Yeah. And then there was one other person, by the way, I need to mention on this project that was also pivotal for me. I met Herb Sturz, um, who Sam Roberts has called the father of social entrepreneurship. He was um, helping on the, on the private sector side of that development project. And so he's also led to a number of other great things, bringing system thinking into social services innovation. Um, so it was really an amazing experience for me, and I'm forever grateful to Rosina for hiring me. Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic story, and I love the the capstone of getting the hug <laughs> as the measure of user satisfaction. You're right. No, no better way to know that you had an impact than that. Uh, and you also, I think you you made a statement that's going to be your pull quote from from this interview, <laughs> uh, which is you know about how, all technology, whether it's physical or digital, uh, is systems, right? It's it's systems in nature, and and that that of course really speaks to me as you know one of my previous books is Pixels in Place, and uh, so much about that interconnected digital and physical experience, and that it's connected through the human experience, like that physical and digital technology uh, is connected through um, through what we experience in the world, and I think that is such a, an overlooked point so often, and I'm so I'm so glad to hear you mention that in the context specifically of thinking about the built environment and about, you know, a built environment that specifically was, uh, was built with this kind of resiliency in mind. That's a, a fantastic kind of learning that's, that's, uh, that's integrative and holistic and systemic in nature, um, which Another pivot point for you, though, you mentioned uh, 
Herb Sturz was, was the name and, and mm. uh, the social services. And that seems like it's a really great opportunity to bring up Casebook and the work that you uh, did with that. So how did that come to be? How did you kind of come up with the idea or, or get to work on that project? Well, Casebook, <laughs> I think like, can I get a sec? Yeah, and go for that water. I'm going to go for my matcha here <clears throat> in my fancy tech humanist mug. <laughs> Love the mug. So, you know, <laughs> we all know that there's no innovation that is created in isolation, right? It's created in a kind of in a milieu, in a, in a, in a, in a context of other people having similar ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and in some ways that competition kind of pushing people toward trying to actually be the first to make it happen. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up in a domestic violence household. Um, I very intimately involved with that. Um, Herb recommended me for the board of um, what was called then called Victim Services, which she helped start, which is now called Safe Horizon. Um, and uh, I was on that board for eight years, um, which focused was the largest, um, still is the largest um, nonprofit focused on um, so domestic violence and child welfare and child abuse. Um, and then, um, you know, so I came to this with a, a fair amount of knowledge and then plus my tech knowledge. And um, one day, um, I was introduced to the vice president for innovation for the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Kathleen Feely, another remarkable person. And Kathleen had been on a tour of all of these you know, established tech players trying to pitch this idea she had. She said, I've been looking at the social interaction model in Casebook, in Facebook, in Facebook, and I was wondering, how could we use that for the benefit of child welfare caseworkers? and the children that they're seeking to serve. And, you know, because you know that, like, when you're in Facebook, everybody has the permission to see certain things. Mm -hmm. People have permissions to, co to, to comment, that you see things in real time, you get notifications for your comments and other things. And so she, she, she went through this, and I was sitting there just beaming. <laughs> and after she was done, I said, I've had the same idea. <laughs> And this was in 2007, and that led to a number of things. It led to trying to find, you know, a a develop software development firm who I thought I could partner with effectively. So I found Pivotal Labs on the West Coast, and and they and convinced them to move open up their second office in New York City, and they became our tech partner for that. We came up with a strategy that went from, you know, a visual prototype, a working prototype, that we built in Ruby on Rails, and then. Um, we turned it into, you know, a, a, a V1 um, that actually community solutions used um, to solve homelessness in, in Brownsville. And, um, Casey, and the Casey Foundation's um, uh, uh, foster care agency used. And then we pitched it to the state of Indiana, and they embraced it. And we pitched it all the way up to Governor Mitch Daniels. And, you know, I led a lot of the negotiations and the pitch. And, um, you know, Daniel said, oh, my, we have to have this, that this is a truly important thing. And because of him, we were able to get exemptions to the state's rules about um, using web-based software, about using open, things that were built on open source, uh, to think about a different financing model and a payment model for this. And um, 
And then we went out and we, we built it. Um, we built a system for $40 million with about 40 people that we took to production in, in 18 months. The previous system in Indiana cost over $150 million, right? It took five years to build and they weren't done. And um, it took a caseworker six months to learn the system. We, it took, takes a caseworker 20 minutes to learn our system. And it's integrated with all the different state agencies, automates you know, federal and state reporting. There's a data warehouse for real-time analytics. And again, we, we built it, we launched it on time, on budget, without a minute of downtime after that. And that's what we can do in our city, in, in our government, mm-hmm. with, with the right process and the right people in place to ensure that we get these outcomes. Um, so it's like, yeah. that was really one of the great experiences in my, another great experience in my career. I was so privileged to have, it gives me confidence that we can do that right here in New York city. Yeah. I, I believe that too. And I, I think it is, it is exciting to think about that, those systems oriented mindsets and what they could tackle, you know, what kind of, um, so, uh, problems that not only could technology solve, but just sort of systems thinking in general. Right. But, but I think there's yeah. a lot of room for technology. I, I think about, um, you know, in, in my in my work and in my speaking, I talk a lot about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and how those 17 goals are such an obvious roadmap for work to align with them. So for businesses to figure out how they can align the work that they're doing with at least one of those goals and how technology can be used to amplify those goals. I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. And so I guess I just wanted to ask you, when you, when you think about um, the the world as it is and the ways that technology that has yet to be developed could still improve human life. Is there kind of um, a, a list that comes to mind? You had such a ready list of all of these uh, great moments in your past. Can you sort of uh, envision to the future of like the moments that you hope that you'll you'll experience or, you know, even be able to, to help lead? What, what are some of the things that you could see happening that could improve human life with technology? Well, there are things large and small. Um, and let me, and I think that it's super important to think in those terms because yeah. the large things take some time. Yeah. And so it's, they're more visionary. And then the small things are things that you can deliver more quickly. And so when we talk about things, uh, strategies, that, that, that's what a strategy is, right? You have near-term deliverables against a longer-term vision. Um, and so I think that kind of thinking is super, super important. I mean, the city is replete with things that don't work. Right. Look at the COVID vaccination issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there wasn't an existing technology. Why not? Well, why shouldn't there be? Right. There is a there's a fire in, in Queens in, in Jackson Heights, Queens, where 240 families, you know, lost their homes. And most of the families don't have any 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 identification. So they can't mm-hmm. even be placed in shelters. And so you look at these things and go like, okay, well, we, we should have a system to be able to automatically generate an identification based on based on some some other verifying information. Mm-hmm. Um, we should have a way to be able to um, certify that people live in a particular place and that they deserve housing. And then we should have a system that matches them to the housing that is available and that exists. And, you know, part of this is infrastructure. Like there is no not a single emergency shelter for families in Queens. Like, how can that be? And so, you know, something as simple as like the ID can spiral into these other different areas of interconnection that are, again, another opportunity. 
um, you know, things like uh, pre-K four, the interface for using that is so so challenging. You know, the city system for finding a school for your kid is so challenging that a nonprofit had to create their own system. You know, Inside Schools was created to do that. You know, the city used to have a principal training program, and then they had to spin it out because they couldn't get support from this administration. Right? There are so many things, kind of small things, that we can start to kind of make do immediate make immediate improvements. But some of the high priority things to me are building on data that we already have. Mm-hmm. We already collect, in, you know, uh, income taxes from everybody in the city. You know, over 60% of, of undocumented immigrants even pay, you know, income taxes. So if you pay income taxes, well, we know what your income is. So why don't we automatically entitle you for benefits instead of making you go from office to office and apply for them? And each one of those applications is cumbersome and mind-numbing and mostly manual, right? And you have to deal with a person. Why isn't it all online and seem, or seamless? Or why does it automatically get done for you? So those are kind of some bigger picture things. I think of having, you know, a 311 system that really operates as a customer service system. So you send in something, you get you get a response back. You send something else in, you start having a conversation with the system with that maybe a human at the other end that you can actually interact with on chat or on the phone. And by the way, it's done in the language that's appropriate to you and that you pre-select. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have an online directory where you can find the people you need to find inside of government? And by the way, citizens can't find people inside the government, but neither can government employees. So why don't we have a knowledge management system to replace this, this green book that's so archaic, this paper-based book about all the government employees? It doesn't make any sense in this day and age. You know, why doesn't the city website work with, with the efficiency of Google? So there's so many things that could be done right off the bat. And those are things that we need to kind of transition the city toward more more of a customer-friendly, user-friendly place, because that's how we're going to restore confidence in government and how we're going to restore confidence in democracy. And it's going to help, I think, bridge a lot of the partisan gaps that we're having, you know, even within our own city. I love that. And it also feels like, it sounds like job-creating to me. It sounds like yes. those are kinds of things, you know, the conversation that I have a lot with companies in, in this day and age is, is around the future of work and the future of human jobs and the rise of intelligent automation. And one of the ideas you just suggested around the 311 customer service orientation and kind of thinking around chat, there's obviously an advantage to being able to kind of insert some conversational AI into that, that um, process to be efficient at scale. But also it takes human workers to train that those uh, conversational AI, those chatbots. It takes human workers to be able to monitor those conversations and make sure that the nuance isn't lost, that we're continually having meaningful interactions with people and that the meaning is there in that process and that we're moving that further down the efficiency line. So I think I, I get excited when I think about you know, those kinds of integrative approaches that can use the best of what technology is and solve for human problems. But you got to start with the human problem, right? You got to start from That's where right. the people are. And yes. I, I like and, that, and the, that. And then on the notion of efficiency, like I, I have just said very plainly that efficiency leads, in my experience, efficiency, efficiency leads to progressive outcomes. That is outcomes that really remedy um, structural inequities and aim towards restorative justice. And I think 
when we look at the Andrew Yang vision of the world, you know, where AI is actually going to take away everybody's jobs, when in the context of New York City government, making it more efficient means that we can reorient our resources toward putting more humans on the front lines, because that's where we're lacking, right? There are so many functions that a human cannot replace, right? Things like education, things like mental health and counseling and social supports. Yeah, 100%. Hey, you know, I, as we get close to our, our uh, the end of our time together, which I'm so sad that I, I always, people say like an hour seems like a long a long program, but I'm like, you'd be surprised because it feels like in order to have this conversation that's really deep and rich, you can cover a lot of ground uh, in that time. So I'm very excited that we've had this time together. And I want to ask you this kind of wrap up closing question that is, uh, I'll be honest, it's because I am thinking this way with my own work. I've moved toward um, the the book that I have coming. Uh, this is little secret aside to all mm. of our watchers and, and listeners as well. The book I have coming out in September is called A Future So Bright. And it is mm. about this notion of strategic optimism, the idea that we can tackle any problem that we have in front of us with an optimistic mindset, as long as we're also strategic about how we deploy that optimism. And I, I get that sense from you, Art Chang, that you probably uh, live with this very strategic optimism about the way that you go about problem solving and seeing the world. And so I want to ask you, how, what gives you hope for humanity? What do you look at and take hope from? And how do you, what, what gives you the best sense of, that, of optimism balanced with strategy when you think about the future? You know, everything gives me hope and optimism, but coupled with fear. And I'll talk about fear in a second because it's so important to, to talk about that. Um, I love people who are on the front lines of the work, whether it's a bus supervisor or a carpenter, um, because they actually have so much knowledge. And if they've been doing it for a while, they, they, they really care a lot. And they love that question that I love asking them, which is, if you could change one thing about your work, what would that be? And inevitably, it relates to something that technology can help with, hmm. um, whether it's a supply problem or whether it's a scheduling problem. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing, which is probably more important, is is really um, the younger generations. Um, millennials and Gen Z fill me with boundless hope for the future because they care so much. They recognize that the world that they're being given is not ideal and that they're going to have to fix it. And so many of the things that have to get fixed, especially climate, are not going to get solved in the next two, four, eight, ten years, right? They're going to spend their whole lives working on it. But they see the existentialist, you know, counter, you know, result if they do nothing right, which is that seas are rising by 10 feet. So what do we do about that? The temperatures are increasing. What are we going to do about that? We're going to have climate refugees in our own country, but also climate refugees from around the world who are going to be seeking, you know, a place to come here in this country. And so, you know, the negative side and the dark side for me is if we do nothing, what I fear is that we are going to, you know, we're going to have an optimistic person. We're going to have an economic recovery. But if we don't lift all boats, if we don't address the inequities that we have 
and then it's going to be a very brutal recovery. Mm-hmm. And we're not we're going to leave the world a much worse place and much more difficult to recover from for these younger generations. And I feel like it's our, it's our duty, it's my duty to make to solve this problem and to put the city on its best foot to make it the best place for the next mayor to go and build upon and leave that legacy for really for the next generation. Um, so that's, I guess that's it in a nutshell. Um, and so there is this kind of yin and yang between the optimism and the fear of, of, you know, bad outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fair. I mean, it, it, part of the strategic optimism model, as I put it forth, is you start with acknowledging the full reality of the situation and you have to, mm. and I feel like you want to leave nothing uh, unacknowledged. You don't want the, to ignore the real risks and, and real world harms that can come to people, especially those who are already marginalized um, as you're beginning to think about solutions. But at the same time, we want to make sure we embrace those good solutions. We want to make sure that we're leaning heavily in the direction of the problems we can solve. And I feel uh, very confident in saying that that is a, a mindset that you seem to share. <laughs> it's like you're all about uh, the solutions to these problems. And it's really charming and endearing. And I'm so glad that we've been able to move this conversation off of Clubhouse and on to uh, this live streaming platform, <laughs> this, this quasi face-to-face. Although now we could actually get together and have a cup of coffee in person, which I'm very much looking forward to doing once uh, once we've gotten through this election cycle, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope, hopefully it'll be a glass of bubbly. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, so I already said it in the intro, but how can people find you and follow your work and your campaign online? Go to www.chang.nyc. At least until primary day, I have Zoom open office hours where anybody can can visit me. I've had people from 8 to 80 show up and ask me questions. And then all of all of our DMs are open on all of our platforms. And that will continue after the election. So um, I'm looking forward to having as many people kind of connect with me as possible. And uh, vote. Please vote. June yeah. 22nd is the primary. You know, rank me number one. Number Art two. Number one. It's, uh, so June 22nd, for any New Yorkers out there, don't forget, June 22nd is Election Day, uh, but we also have early voting until the 20th, I believe, right? And then, so the 21st is kind of a dead day in between, so there's no voting on that day. And I'm working at a poll site. This will be my very first time uh, as a poll worker. I signed up for the November election, and I guess they just had enough people who were scared for our democracy and had signed up and <laughs> didn't need me. But I get to do my very first uh, stint as a poll worker in this election. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited for you, Art, to continue through this campaign process, and I'm excited for us to raise a glass after this is all said and done. So thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Thank you again, Art, for being here. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes, or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.